You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And now that heart is beating fast, and that's the rhythm I can dance to. I'm mighty glad I've got a chance to, that one big heart that's beating fast. Tomorrow morning, let it rain. Tomorrow morning, let it pour. Tonight we're in the groove together. Ain't gonna worry about stormy weather. Gonna kick all trouble out the door. Beat out old trouble and drunk. Beat out old trouble and drum. Beat out old trouble and drum. And kick all trouble out the door. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. Welcome to Radical Australia and Community Radio 3CR. This program is streaming on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. My name's Joseph Toscano, and uh, as usual, we've got another fascinating guest here at uh, 3CR on Radical Australia. If you want to get fascinating guests, don't listen to the Government Guild at ABC or the corporate-owned media. Just listen to Community Radio, and uh, you'll get some interesting people. John, how are you? I'm, I'm very well, Joe. Right. John Elgate, A-L-G-A-T-E. Now, you're living in Brisbane, is that correct? That's right. Uh, were you born in Brisbane? I wasn't born in Brisbane. I was born in a little um, town outside Brisbane. Kilcoy was where the hospital was. Yeah. Um, they had a baby boom when I was born. They had two babies there <laughs> at the same time. Yeah, well, I was, I've actually got... I feel a bit ashamed talking to you, John, because I, I was actually born in Brisbane. Now, I assume... I think we were born in the same year. I was born in 1951. When were you born? I'm um, 1955. Oh, you're just a youngster. So. Yeah. Did, uh, right. So did you spend all your life in, in the country or did you move to uh, Brisbane as you got older? Yes, look, I, I grew up and lived in a little town called Linville, which was the last little uh, town in the Brisbane Valley. I lived there till I was eight, nearly nine, and my parents moved to Brisbane. We moved to um, a suburb of The Gap. Ah, um, The Gap, yep which is where I still live, even though uh, at the other end of it, and I sort of returned here after a little bit of time out of home. Right. So where did you go to high school? I'm an old Gap High boy. Uh-huh. I went there uh, 1967 to 72. It was, a, it was one of those... Um, Queensland was a bit behind the rest of the country when it came to uh, education in our, in our schools, um, Mm-hmm. But there was a massive boost in the number of state schools in the late fifties, early sixties, when the National Party, National Liberal Government came in. They increased their school age to fifteen from fourteen, and they built high schools all around the place. So, in Queensland, you, you just find a lot of suburbs, a lot of communities where the high schools were founded around that time. And the Gap was one of those young high schools when I 
when I started there. It's, it's quite interesting because I went to Salisbury State High School and uh, Maruka Primary, and uh, you're quite right about the building of high schools. I think Queensland, unlike Victoria, where I've been living for the last four decades, has a higher number of children. During that period, he went to public schools, and private schools were relatively few and far between compared to Victoria. So uh, it's interesting. Sometimes I think maybe that has had an influence on the type of society we've become and the number of uh, Queenslanders who, who've escaped during the Bielke-Peterson era. Mm. So what, what... I didn't escape. I actually was there reporting a lot of that era, oh, yeah. towards the end of it. <laughs> right. I, uh, so, so after high school, what did you do? I left high school and I'm matriculated, but right. I hadn't worked out what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I took a year, I took what they now call a gap year, but instead of going on some exotic travels, I worked in a brickworks. I took a job at the university in the veterinary post mortem school for a while, mm-hmm. and I worked uh, loading trucks out the back of the uh, Courier Mail yep. here, here in Brisbane yep. while I worked a few things out. Then I enrolled in, um, I decided it was time to go to uni, I enrolled in law. Um, but a couple of weeks before um, university started, I got a call from the Courier Mail. I'd sent an application in there some 10 months before to get a cadetship. And um, they called me in and uh, had a quick interview. And a week later, started a cadetship at the Courier Mail, which was Brisbane's main morning newspaper. Well, basically the only morning newspaper, really, isn't it? Yes, we had another one started up for a little while, yeah. a Murdoch paper but it, it the sun but it, it folded after a few years yeah so you never made it to saint lucia well as a as a, as a student i did make it as a student but right. I, I made it as a part-time student right. um, my cadetship involved um, a couple of subjects a year for the three years of that most cadets at the time didn't do much more but but i continued doing the study off and on for many years and then in 1991, actually went back and took a year to finish the degree. Right. What's the degree? Oh, it's just a Bachelor of Arts degree with a major in journalism right, because right. that was the easiest way of putting right. it together. Mm. So what year did you start university at St Lucia? Look, I, did a, I wanted to cement my place in the university system, so I actually did a bit of part-time study a um, couple of subjects that year when I worked in the brickworks. So, so I came out what, there what, at what, 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 That was 1973. Oh, we should have we should have crossed paths. I was at, I was at Saint Lucia between 1970 and 75, finishing a medical degree. You realise right. we may have crossed paths in, in the uh, in the in the cafeteria. We very likely did, and it was obviously a much smaller place in those days, uh, as you know very. Yeah. Um, Queensland didn't have anywhere near as many university students and places as the other states. Well, that's right. There was no, there was no, there was no Griffith University, and there was no Bond University in those days. Everybody went to Saint Lucia, from a, and it was quite a interesting period because lots of things were happening. How, how do you think that uh, moulded your opinions? The fact one, you were working for the Courier Mail, and two. You're in an environment where a lot of people were questioning a lot of things. Yeah, it was really. It was an interesting. It was an interesting time. Um, quick. Um, I mean, it was the. We were still in the Whitlam years when I started. Um, Queensland and Joe and the 
reaction against uh, you know the fight between him and the federal government there was a lot happening that involved queensland and it was a pretty pretty complex time um i, I think i think those uh, formative years that period from you know 17 through into your early 20s i i I think that's the era where, or the period in your life, where you become aware of the complexity of the world a lot more than when you're younger, and uh, and, I, I, and I think that was the case with me. Mm. So you said you were reporting for the Courier Mail at this stage, were you, or just a few years later? No, I was reporting for the Courier Mail from '74 through to '76, mm-hmm. um, and then I left and went to a small suburban newspaper for I finished my cadetship and. I, Went to a small um, suburban newspaper. I was I was getting married at a fairly young age, and they were offering me a bit more money and a bit better shifts. But it soon became clear to me that I'd rather be back in the main game. And uh, then, in a couple of months after I was married, in April 1977, I had a chance to get a job at Channel 10 in Brisbane. So I took that, and I worked there for the next 12 years, except for a stint in Canberra. Right. It's, it's interesting, isn't it, that said you got married at an early age. In, during that period, it's not unusual for us to have been married at 18, between 18 and 20. I mean, you left home at 16, this was the rite of passage, and you got married by the time you were 20. It's not unusual. It was, it was pretty normal, wasn't it? Yeah, I was 21, and, mm. and that was normal at the time. My wife was a couple of years older than me. Yeah. Um, that probably brought brought it forward a, a little bit, mm-hmm. Um but that was the right person and the right time for me, so that's mm-hmm. what happened. And you, and other things in life, like careers, take a back seat to, you know, your your personal life. Mm. And what uh, role did you play at Channel Ten? Look, I, I did just about everything that was possible to do there. I, I started off. Um, I started off because I had police rounds experience at the Courier Mail, and I was starting up a, a funny little night service, and they didn't have the money i don't think to have people on staff for all the time doing on-air stuff they bought a, an electric typewriter <laughs> and if something happened i'd have to set the memory in the electric typewriter go upstairs into studio c they'd set the camera up on the computer and they'd have the ad break and i'd do the news update by pressing a button and they'd film what was printed out mm. that was the first job i had there but of course that was only for a few hours a night and it meant the rest of the day I'd start at 2 o'clock, I'd get a chance to report and learn TV, and then I'd follow it through at night as, as that uh, update person. Uh, I actually did a, a bit of a switch with them to get a bit more chance to report that instead of working five, eight-hour shifts, I'd work three days for about 12 hours, so I could do a full shift on news and then... Um, and then a shift at night just to cover that, which meant I got more into the reporting side of it a lot more quickly. And um, so I did the, the normal general reporting. Um, I was a sport. I was a bit of a sports fanatic. I'd done some sports reporting at the Courier Mail, so I got into the sport there, and uh, just worked my way into into the industry. Mm. Did you find during that period there were, there were topics you were kind of uh, shunted away from, or did you basically were able to? comment on the news as you saw fit comment wasn't as common as it is now comment um was really reserved for very specialist reporters or Mm -hmm. specialist people on in in certain circumstances so it wasn't so much commenting on the news but there was no topic it was a very very good news service um and 
uh, it was it was a very good news service with with some really good people and and there was nothing nothing really was taboo. I I can't. But I was probably at that stage too young to have felt any of the pressure coming anyway. I guess if pressure's existing, it comes on your bosses. Mm -hmm. I, had a, I had some great bosses. Um, uh, three of them would have been known. You know, there, there was a there were three senior producers that set up the Ten Newsroom. John O'Lone, who went over to run Sky News when it started in um, in London. Um, Des McWilliam, who's still a really good mate of mine, he became a news director for the Ten Network for a while. And Howard Saker, who ended up uh, as a senior producer on uh, 60 Minutes and had a pretty pretty good career himself. And they were the three running the news, and they were actually very, very good. I mean, this would have been, the 1980s would have been the, the height of the uh, Bielke-Peterson era. Um, how difficult was it to report in what was going on in Parliament and in the National Party during that period? Joe was very <coughs> incredibly accessible, and the Labor Party was, for a lot of that, very disorganised. It really... So, uh, and the Liberal Party uh, had worked themselves into a position of almost irrelevance by the end of it. It was a pretty exciting time, though. You had Terry White, who was a, a millionaire pharmacist who got in and was leader. I think it was 83 that he tore up the agreement, the coalition agreement, and then mm. got vanquished in the election. Um, it was a dynamic time. You had Wayne Goss came into the party, um, a young, bright young lawyer, a man of great integrity that I later worked for. Um, Peter Beatty, uh, young bloke, came in um, to uh, as state secretary of the party. He was part of the Bill Hayden push to update the party, to intervene in the branches to bring the factional wars to a head and start to seriously think about winning government and running the state instead of just seeing who uh, who could uh, beat each other about the head in party forums. So it was a very, very interesting time. You also had uh, the head of the National Party off the field, so to speak, uh, Bob, Bob Sparks, who was president, and Mike Evans, who was the state secretary. They were two of the most capable and gifted um, uh, behind-the-scenes uh, political operatives, I think, in Australia. And mm. um, so it, that, that um, mix, for someone like me who was interested in politics, uh, that, that mix of people, experiences, uh, abilities and dynamics was, was very fascinating. Yeah, you're right about the disorganisation of the Labor Party. I remember when I was 16 or 17, me and a friend were at high school, I think grade 11 or 12, and we walked up these rickety stairs somewhere in the CBD, I've forgotten exactly where, to go to Labor Party headquarters because we wanted to join the party and we were escorted down the stairs because <laughs> they didn't want any new members, we were told. <laughs> it was quite interesting, obviously, the factional... I think it was one of the old uh, World Trade Union factions there, I don't know which one, but uh, we learned very quickly that you couldn't uh, really rely on them. You're quite right, that's why... Uh, as you said, to a large degree, Bjorki Peterson got away with what he got away with for so long because of a, there's really no opposition. I assume after, was it 40 years of Labor rule? Was it from 25? 30, 32. 32, 32, yeah, that uh, um, the party became fossilised in the old ways. Yeah. Mm. Yes, 
but 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 there were some dynamic things happening, mm. and there were people. Bill Bill Hayden really did the the heavy lifting mm. in um, in getting structural reform in the party, mm. and he had some really good people came through under his tutelage. Right. Um, Peter Beattie, David Hamill, right. uh, both both of whom I I worked for as press secretaries later on. Um, uh, you know, David was a Rhodes Scholar, very very capable person. Mm. So they brought some really good people into the party. Obviously, Wayne Goss. Yes. Uh, who was just an outstanding uh, premier and and a man of outstanding integrity. Mm. Um, it it uh, you know so it it took a lot of a lot of work to turn it around and get them pulling in the, the right direction. And I'm not criticising some of the people that were in the party at the time. People like Nev Warburton, who had been party leader. I mean, Nev was a a lovely man and and a very genuine person, but. Uh, he had an organisation that, you know, uh, uh, that wasn't working very well and, and uh, a structure that wasn't allowing the best people to get into Parliament. By contrast, uh, for all the way people can knock or uh, the Bjorki Peterson government, they had some incredibly good uh, and capable ministers and administrators there. It wasn't all police corruption and, and cronyism, even though a lot of that emerged in the later years. But there actually were some terribly competent administrators there. There were other reasons why they kept getting elected than just the ALP uh, incompetence and the gerrymander. Um, even with the, without the gerrymander, I don't think Labor ever got enough votes to form government mm. in those years, even if it had been a you know 50% plus one takes all. So it, it was a bit more complex than the history has been written. Mm. Were you still reporting when the wheels came off the Bjorki Peterson uh, government? I was in Canberra reporting in the Federal Bureau right. in '87 and the mm. election when that happened, and and when the Fitzgerald inquiry was happening. Because of my knowledge of Queensland politics, I was, uh, um, I mean, I was in Canberra when just started there when Joe did the ill-fated Joe for Canberra push, and he went out to Wagga Wagga and was going to start a brush fire that would go around the country. That's right. Yes, I remember those days. Um, yeah. Badly um, for him, and that was sort of the the start, I guess, of it. They they'd send me up near the end of the inquiry to do some national reports out of the Fitzgerald inquiry because obviously the local coverage would be a massive amount in the news each night. That down south they'd then try to cut around and make sense of. So when Joe uh, gave his evidence, um, they sent me up to Brisbane to um, to do the reports. Mm. Were you surprised by the extent of the um, corruption in the government, or did you just think it just just got tired and was going nowhere? Because look, I, I I left in seventy seven because when I um, graduated in seventy five, I did an internship at the Royal Brisbane Hospital, and then I was told that I would never get any job anywhere in any public hospital in uh, Queensland. End of story, and that's why I moved to Victoria. But, uh, but, but so I basically was aware then how powerful the government was because it was a it was a it was a directive from the health department. So, were you surprised by the extent of the corruption which was revealed by the Fitzgerald inquiry? Because obviously you'd been reporting for a, a large number of years in Queensland, and you would have been closer to it than anybody else, really. Corruption by its very nature isn't uh, immediately obvious until someone shines a light on it. But the mm. experience you had there, well, you, you, you 
sadly, you weren't alone. I mean, I know that. I know there were many people in, left. You, you had those issues in medicine. Mm. I know of people who were school principals in country areas who ran for the Labor Party whose careers were ruined. They were just moved out mm. and uh, suppressed. I mean, there was a lot of that going on, and that's the, that's a hallmark of of a corrupt process is when that starts, when that type of thing starts happening. Um, I think we knew our police service wasn't what it should be. I remember when I was on the Courier Mail, the Courier Mail the reporter there called Peter Hanson, who was the daytime police roundsman, uh, did a series of reports on um, police conduct, on verbaling and, and, and getting into some of this. I was there when the Southport betting case was on, when the corrupt coppers were able to turn it around on the people investigating them to make, uh, to make them... Um, uh, what was the word? Uh, they, they got them for falsifying information or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. I, I forget the exact details. I'd have yes. to go and check back the Fitzgerald Inquiry report that I've still got on my shelf here to find out about it. But there were signs of it going for a long time, but pinning it down and putting your finger on it was very difficult. I mean, we had a High Court judge, uh, Harry um, Harry Gibbs, who did an inquiry into the National Hotel Inquiry back in the 60s. Um, you know, everyone in Brisbane knew that a major prostitution ring was run out of the National Hotel, but, um, but uh, a learned judge couldn't find it, and the people who turned evidence were criticised uh, in his report. So they were very, very clever mm. at hiding it and setting people up. And that's what really emerged through the Fitzgerald inquiry, that, that, that they, were, they were good at um, obfuscating what was happening in Queensland. And, and that was the police, and, and more, than the, more than the government. Um, I personally suspect that J.B. Peterson would have been incredibly surprised by some of the information coming out mm. of, the, of the police service at that time. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I, I think... Um Things came to a head in my own mind. It was, I think it was 1971 I was involved in the protest with... And Senator George Georges. I don't know if you remember Senator George Georges. Yeah, I remember him. You know, yep. He's a very courageous man. And uh, I was standing next to him and the police bundled him into the police wagon and started laying into him physically. You know, he was only five foot something. He was big, he's a rotund little man. And I'm thinking to myself, if this is how they treat a senator of, of the state with impunity, you know... You know, things must be much worse than we think. Yeah, and, and it was. It, yeah. it was terrible. And, yeah. and of course, um, one, one lot of compromises produces another lot of compromises and, and it just goes on and eventually it, yeah. uh, it yeah. undermines the whole process. Mm. So you said at an earlier part of the interview that uh, you went overseas at some stage? I didn't go overseas, didn't I go went to Canberra, <laughs> I went and worked in Canberra. Um, That's I, I a different I, I, world anyway, isn't it? So we yeah, actually no, in the I press gallery? I didn't work overseas, or? I had a few opportunities to do so, but, yeah, uh, yeah. but uh, and, and I, I mean, I went across, I went to New Guinea a couple yeah. of times for work and things like that, but yeah. uh, New Zealand, I didn't get all that far no. in, in my, my journalistic right. work, but, right. uh, so, so, so what was it like in the press, you were in the press gallery in Canberra, I assume you in the press gallery in Canberra? Yes, I was, I was with yeah. Network 10. What would you have made of the uh, situation that's been unfolding in Parliament in the last few weeks? When, if you think the same type of things were happening then, or were there, were there Canberra, rumours? Canberra were there rumours? Two places. Canberra was, yeah. and I was there. Uh, it was it was Parliament House. It was this little bubble of three thousand of us, and we all lived in that bubble. Mm. 
uh, and then the rest of Canberra and the rest of the public service. Right. Now I think they saw the other day it's 4,000 people. It's a pretty robust place. People work incredibly hard, everyone. I mean, we worked in, you know, if it was happening, you were there. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, everyone worked hard, lived hard, and and people were buoyed by, there was an adrenaline run in, in every office. If you were a 20-year-old administ you know, administrative assistant or if you were a 40-year-old senior policy advisor or a minister or a politician, it didn't matter. You, you were caught up in the hype and the fact that you were living in, that you were doing something significant. And there were liaisons. It was legendary. No one reported it much in those days. Because no, it, was no. just, it was just rumour. Mm. People were allowed their private peccadilloes. I mean, what, we have, what we've had the last bit is about sexual assault. These yes. are serious crimes that yes. we are talking about. Mm. Um, but, but certainly it was a... Um, a very free-flowing environment, yes. in, uh, to some extent, in Parliament yeah. in those days. And that doesn't mean everyone, yeah. but it certainly meant um, mm. that, uh, you know, that there, were, there were a lot of stories and a lot of rumours floating around about mm. people um, mm. getting up to a bit of mischief. I remember, although they didn't report on these things, I remember the way Jim Cairns was uh, crucified uh, when that, uh, that, that media ran on that very strongly in comparison to, you know, to other members of Parliament. Thinking of Snedden and all those other situations, but uh, I assume it's the price you pay for having radical opinions. Yes, I actually, one of the really good things about being a journalist is you get to meet a lot of really interesting people and and spend a, a, a bit of time with them. I, I remember as a cadet, I mean, I was about nineteen or something, so it would have been around that time. Um, Jim Cairns came to Brisbane and he just put out a book, Oil on uh, Oil on Troubled Waters. On, I might have the name wrong mm. there, but he was, he was in Brisbane and I got to spend about half a day uh, with him and, you know, he was a, uh, he was a highly intelligent man and, and uh, a very interesting, very interesting fellow. But of course, he was out of politics by the time I got to Canberra. Right. So how, how long did you keep reporting for? I reported for 16 years all up, but three and a half years in newspapers, then about 12 in TV. Yeah. I left um, television seven weeks before the December 2 elections here in Brisbane yeah. when um, that was the end of that decade of, of excess when the TV stations all paid far too much for, for themselves and couldn't make any money and went bust. Um, Christopher Scase had us, but then he went and bought seven. Uh, Bond obviously had the nines. I think it was Holmes Court had the sevens initially. Um, yeah. And... They were offering redundancies, and by that stage, I, lo I love reporting, but there are limits to it, and, and I, I felt it was time for a bit of a change. So I took the chance to take a, a modest redundancy um, and left and you know, worked for myself for about seven weeks, and that worked pretty well. <laughs> That's a long time, seven weeks. I've worked for myself for 42 years. Yeah. So. Uh, I worked for myself for seven weeks, and then the election was held, and then a few days after the election... Yeah. When I was still interested, I was doing stuff in New yeah, Zealand. You got the knock TV on the door, did you? Current affairs show, yeah. and I and the day Goss told people they could start looking for staff, I got three or four phone calls here oh, excellent. that morning, and I ended up going working as David Hamill's first press secretary. Right. I ended up actually on Wayne because I was free to go on Wayne Goss's transition team, so I was in there the day after the government was sworn in, and there were sort of four of us. Uh, there was Kevin Rudd, who was his chief of staff, and there were. 
four of us on the media corps mm. at that time they brought in and we each ran about four ministers and worked in pretty closely with Wayne and Kevin on the transition, which was a fascinating time in my life, but I was always going to, providing I won the job, work with David. Uh, we were similar of age, had similar views on politics and life, um, mm. and, uh, and I went and worked with him in transport and Minister Assisting Economic and Trade Development. And then when I finished there, um, later moved on with other things, I ended up going back to David as his final press secretary for the last eight or nine months when he was Queensland Treasurer in 2001 mm. and retired from politics. Mm. So what does a press secretary for a minister actually do? Look, it varies, it varies according to the office and, and the minister and, and the dynamics. David had worked with Bill Hayden, and Bill Hayden was a very, very capable man and, and administrator and I believe would have run a really good office. Uh, David actually hired a chap, Rob Whidden, as his senior policy advisor and me as his senior media advisor. Uh, Rob went on to be chief of staff for Peter Beattie many years later when he was premier and ended up being a manager of Queensland Trade Office. So it was... We... Your most important part is, is your advice, even though you work your butt off writing speeches, doing media releases. It's really working with people and explaining to your boss, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. This is where the attacks will come. These are, it's, it's sort of analysing it, and this is what, these are the questions the media is going to ask you. These are the interest groups, and, and it's not just the press sec, the whole office mm. needs to identify these things. It's, it's about working out what it actually means because a lot of stuff lands on your desk as a minister that all seems like a good idea at the time but it's not much good if you can't take the community with you if you're going to be shot down on your first outing if it's going to become controversial when you're actually trying to achieve something so i don't know if that's making i mean no, no that makes it very clear calls, yeah, a lot you of build people, calls yeah. from the media yeah. you write the speeches or yeah. coordinate the speeches mm. you mm. coordinate all of the media coverage right. that goes with it in some offices, that's uh, I, I've known press secs who that's been the limit of it. The minister would simply go and deal with the senior policy person, then call the media guy in and say, "We've decided to do this now. Go and write it." In other offices, and fortunately, in most of, in a lot of the offices I worked in, um, it was a much more you were much more heavily involved mm. than that. So it sounds like a twenty-four hour job, seven day a week job, because you need to keep on top of what's happening. It certainly was back then, yeah, and yeah. Uh, and, I, and I, I went. I, I can remember one period there with David, uh, where I went thirteen weeks. We, we had a look at it where I hadn't had a day off, and some of that included lots of travel and lots of nights where you could be at Parliament till ten, eleven, twelve o'clock at night, or even mm. in the early morning sometimes. You'd get your calls from the media would start five thirty in the morning. So if you're in a busy office with a senior minister, you could be incredibly uh, drowned in uh, in work. Makes it makes it very difficult. I don't think people realise how difficult it is for the, uh, you know, partners and families of people who work in uh, your position and uh, politicians. I know a lot of people like to criticise them constantly, but it's an exceptionally demanding job, isn't it? Really, it is. And and I and I, I did that. You, I don't think many work quite as hard as we did in that office. No. Um, we rewrote mm. three major parliamentary acts and put them through in fifteen months, and that was. Um, 
you know, that, that implied and involved a lot of work. Mm. Uh, I think ultimately it was the family side of things. Um, I brought home, I used to bring home a, a bag of a briefcase full of works and briefs that I hadn't got to because I'd want to see my boys. I had two little kids, two mm. little boys at the time. And I wanted to see them before I would uh, before I went to bed. So I'd get home about 8.30 and, and I was there one night and, and little Sean, my youngest, came up and he was apparently talking, but I had this briefcase open, I sitting on the couch going through it. Mm. And he looked up and he said, and he spoke to my wife, he said, Mum, I'm talking, but Daddy doesn't hear me <laughs> because I was just so focused on work. And, and that was sort of the telling point for me. Yeah. I decided that uh, much as I loved the job, that first year of change management in a new government um, was badly affecting my family life, so I, uh, I moved on. I later went back to it, but after the boys, I got more regular jobs, more regular hours right. as a comms officer, and later moved back into the political work once my boys were you know, right. uh, seven or eight years older. Right. Did you continue the political work till you retired, or are you still working? No, I, I was sort of in and out of it. Um, I, 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 um, I, I ended up doing. I ended up in the public service. I was a director. Of, I, my last job was director of communications and marketing for the Department of Education and Training. Um, but through that time in um, public service work, I spent about seven or eight years on ministerial work, and I spent about. Um, what the rest of it, um, uh, on 14, 13 years or something uh, in, in departmental work. Mm. So when you retired, did you find yourself with a little bit of relevance deprivation syndrome or did you have plans? No, I, I didn't. I'd, I'd <coughs> I didn't have as much as a lot of people do, I don't think. Um, mm. I hadn't really planned to retire at that point. It was in the time when the um, uh, Newman government was in and they were laying off public servants here in Queensland. Um, I, it, I was able to, to get one of those redundancies and was happy to do so because I was at a stage in my job where you do a job, I'd created a lot of the work around the job I did in education. I'd created a communications consultancy briefing process and trained my staff and, and brought it in. The job, all jobs and all workplaces need to be redefined at some time and I knew the place really needed to be looked at again and um, and modernised to changing situations. I didn't think I was the person to revisit what was a largely my own creation. I, I thought it needed fresh eyes. And I think that's one thing your communications does need. So I was ready to move on. The opportunity came to move on, and so I moved on, and I kept doing bits. And then since then, I've done bits of um, bits of editing, writing, and, and comms work. I, I wrote my book, um, and uh, and uh, you know, I was able to have a, an earlier retirement than I ever had really anticipated. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You just just used a word which I've never been able to use. I wrote my book. So what book is that? Look, the book I wrote is called Jesse's House of Needles. When did you start? When did you start the book and why? I mean, there's a lot of interesting people in this country's history, but, I mean, obviously we'll speak about Jesse in a minute, but what drew you to this? Because to my chagrin, I have never heard of Jesse Williamson and I like to think of myself as somebody who knows what's going on. 
And uh, what drew you to this particular piece? I'd never heard of Jesse Williamson until I... After retirement, um, we... We went camping. We got ourselves a little camper trailer, a little tent on wheels, and we started doing some other stuff. We went camping and met some people on our very first outing, um, going up to up the Queensland coast to Cooktown. We became really good friends. They live in New South Wales, um, and through them, we, we went camping down in the, the Woody Heads National Park, um, north of the of um, Yamba near Aluka. Uh, every year for a while and they brought some other very good friends of theirs along and we were talking and I was talking about um, uh, work, I started work on uh, researching a bit of a book about Brisbane's war years but as we went through Gabrielle said look you might be interested in this and it turns out that her best friend for many years uh, was, was Thelma Minto who is Jesse Williamson's sister, one of Jesse Williamson's sisters. Mm. And they had all of this material they'd collected on Jesse. Um, she, she, at that stage, passed away uh, around that time, uh, or shortly before that. There was all this material they had. They had all of her correspondence. She was a, a super keen letter writer. They had all of her correspondence. They'd collected material from around the world for Jesse um, to do something with her, and they, but they were... They were having trouble. Different writers had gone to it, but they couldn't quite work out how to tell the story. And so I said, "Look, I'm not interested in you know. I wasn't. I said, Look, I'm not really sure. I'm interested in writing about a you know a Christian missionary nurse. But mm-hmm. look, if, if someone wants to send me some material, I might be able to go through it and get some suggestions on how you could do it. And of course, uh, several hundred pages of um, Jesse's letters." copies of Jesse's letters uh, turned up in the post a week or so later and I started reading it and couldn't put it down. I found it quite fascinating. And I was, and I saw a way of writing it and doing the book that would make it not so much an autobiography but almost a memoir um, using as much of Jesse's own words but bringing it and collating it in a, in a form that was interesting. The other thing that I guess fitted was I had an interest, I've always had a very strong interest in the Pacific and, and particularly Papua New Guinea as opposed to West Papua. Uh, we're, we're obviously here in Queensland, we're close to them and have had a very long close association with, with Papua New Guinea. Um, and so just sort of, I said, look, here's how I think you can do it. And I thought, well, I don't, I, I think I'm a person with the skills that fit this particular story. And so I just, you know, I spoke to the family and and I took it on. Yeah, look, it's interesting that how the fact that you had all this material... This is what worries me about the modern age, you know, when letter writing has di- almost disappeared, that um, all that stuff that you put up there on the iCloud, and it, sometimes it's not as good as a letter, is it? No, it's not. It's, it, uh, conversations are stilted. I mean, I don't. I mean, people do email conversations now. It used to really bug me when I worked, and I had a team of people who had only ever grown up doing emails, mm. and I'd, and they'd have these email trails, and I said, why don't you just pick up the phone and talk to the person for two minutes and work it out? And the same with, um, uh, and get rid of the ambiguities, you know. And the same with with the letter writing. I mean, to have these uh, letters that um, Jesse sent back, they were contemporaneous to the time. They obviously weren't always best informed. They, they included rumour 
as well as reality and part of my job was to work through some of that but by and large she was a very good and accurate recorder and faithful recorder of, of events mm. albeit seen through um, the um, uh, the prism of her beliefs and her own work and her, her time and what was happening there um, but but she was a good writer and and mm. uh, and, and what also emerged looking at it was the issues that she wrote about when she first went in there in, 19, in May 1966 and the issues she was writing about in 2000 when she finished her 35 years of time in West Papua. Many of the issues, they moved on, but they were the same. Mm. And so a lot of the stuff was done in the book. I was able to do it through the, the range of themes that had developed. And, and those themes, I guess also represented the modern history of, of West Papua emerging as, as a modern state, a modern um, connecting with the, the modern world. Mm. So, um, did you, did you, you have know, any other... I, I just found it very interesting. It was the right project for yeah. me at the right time. I'm probably a better editor than I am a writer in many right. ways, and a lot of this was about editing and connecting right. and connecting the story um, almost in documentary style. Apart from the written material that you had, did you were you able to conduct any interviews with uh, people? Uh, she yeah, knew people, who people were, yeah, people. People were brilliant. Anyone that knew Jessie loved her. She was a remarkable lady. Um, she, uh, I, uh, the family had collected a lot of material. They put me in touch with um, many of the people she'd worked with. You know, and, and lived in. Sometimes people think it's their story, and you're basically just putting it together. They don't actually understand the the breadth breadth of knowledge and experience you bring to bringing something like that together. Now, can you tell us something about Jessie Williamson? I'm sure most of our listeners have never heard of her. I, I do know that you will be speaking about her in the book Jessie's House of Needles on this Sunday at 2 p.m. at the West Papua Open Day. But uh, and you'll be doing that via technology, virtually. But uh, 
for those listeners who can't come to the West Papua Open Day, and even those who are coming, could you tell us about Jessie Williams? What makes her such a remarkable human being? I think what made her such a remarkable human being was her incredible tenacity and determination to do what she believed was right. Um, She was a person of very strong uh, conviction, very strong Christian faith. She was also a remarkable nurse who uh, the book just um, details some, you know, some incredible work that I, I know you're a doctor, Joe, and there's stuff that I, I suspect she took on that you'd sort of go, oh, I've got to do this, have yeah, I? Yeah, well, and I wouldn't, no be, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be amputating legs in the jungle, I can assure you of that, obviously. No, well, <laughs> she was uh, faced yeah. with that problem. She, yeah, she was. She did some amputations. She did, uh, she, uh, she, she ran vaccine programs, she, that, uh, when she went, there's a statement I took out of a documentary that was done that she spoke in. I, I think it was a, put together in about 2010 when she was back up there for some special occasion. And, and, she, and I've used it in, right at the front of the book. And, and I think, that, you know, um, I, I might just read it. Yes. Because I, 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 it's I only very short. Mm. But mm. I was asked to come to Corapoon because they didn't have a medical program. The church needed someone to train their local people to become clinic workers and midwives. When I arrived, the people were not very keen about the clinic because they still had their witch doctors and their medicine men. So we started off with maybe a dozen people in the clinic. Two years later, the clinic was full and I was training six clinic workers a year. When I first came here, the death rate for children under two was 50%. Now it's down to just one or two every couple of months. That's the sort of impact that one person with commitment and the right skills, knowledge, perseverance can make uh, in the world. I think that's why she's such a well-loved memory for the people up there. So she basically, not that I know much about it, it seems to me she basically sacrificed her life for other people. Would that be correct or did she have... Uh, she, she wouldn't have seen it as a sacrifice. No, no, I understand. She, she followed yeah. her calling, and, mm-hmm. and out of that, it was a mixed calling for her. She was first and foremost a missionary, and second the nurse. But the, the nurse and the compassion, the caring, was intimately linked to her personal political beliefs. So, you know, that was her package as a person. Uh, she was on it. She, re, re, uh, she was installed as a member of the Order of Australia mm-hmm. in 1998 for her humanitarian work. Um, uh, she she had a network here in Australia that she worked through that financially supported her. There were about 600 people regularly received um, people and organisations, most of them individual Christians or Christian churches, that used to receive her monthly newsletters that she would write, send back to Australia. One of her sisters would type them up, running over them off and send them out. And she'd say, look, we've... we've this is happening here, I need this, and suddenly it would turn up, you know, from this network. Um, it, um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, contentious views, obviously, around colonialism, around the roles of uh, churches and, uh, and missions in, mm-hmm. in the development of all communities, including those in the Pacific uh, area. Um, but 
and and we tend to to see you know it's like in in our in our world we tend to see people, things really clearly it's either right or wrong right. black and white <laughs> we want to see it that way yes. but the world is a, is a is a very complex yes. mosaic yes. and um i doubt there's one person that ever dealt with Jessie, except if they ended up on the wrong side of her tongue or sense of righteousness yes. um but certainly most would have, would have seen her as a very uh, blessed and um, and lovely person that, that enriched their lives and bettered their community. Yeah. Look, you kind of uh, reminded me of something. When we first met the uh, first West Papuan activists here in uh, refugees here in Melbourne, about six or seven years ago, one of their major uh, problems was they didn't actually have an organising spot. You know, they were working out of there rented accommodation basically for their independence struggle and uh, there's a group of us that most mainly atheists and radical activists and we got together and um, set up a rent collective which pays the rent for their uh, luxurious office in Collins Street and Docklands and we soon learnt that most of these revolutionaries and rebels were uh, fundamentalist Christians and uh, you know we, we learnt very quickly how important um, Christian fundamentalism is to uh, West Papua and people, even those that are in positions of authority in the transitional government, that it's uh, it, it's like a lifeline. You're quite right. It's not black and white. We didn't end our relationship. We just accepted that's the way it is and that's the way it is and we continue to support the, their struggle by paying the rent for their office. So you're quite right. I, I was, you know, being an atheist for a long time, I was pretty amazed at how deep the religious sentiment ran. You know, we have prayers, they have prayers, they've got their own church now here in, in Melbourne uh, with their own brand of fundamentalism that goes on and on. But, you know, but obviously people like Jesse had a profound impact on, on the people they ministered to because obviously there's nothing more important than looking after people's children and their own health. Mm. Yes, and, and I know that there's a there was a bit of controversy over the years about the missions and their uh, and their involvement there and, and uh, the New York Times ran a pretty controversial form journalism article back in the 80s um, uh, John and I'll get you to get a bit closer to the phone we're having a little bit of trouble here in you sorry sorry the, the that's New better Times ran a long form journalism article there back in the, in the uh, late 80s that was pretty critical of the missions I've read some of the responses to that that were never um, published by response by the New York Times in response, um, but very much that article and, and Jesse's own papers saw themselves as coming to West Papua to beat the carpetbaggers and the worst of Western civilization um, because the country was going to open up, and after the war. It was in the 50s. Um, there was no colonial administration at all in the interior of the country. There'd been one mission outpost allowed by the Dutch um, down by the lakes in the western end there of Papua in 1938, and they'd been chased out as the Japanese came through. Uh, there'd been one National Geographic, big National Geographic um, um, expedition into the highlands at some time there just before the war. Uh, there had been a little bit of contact by crash planes and plane searches in the war, 
few minutes uh, have you got any obviously uh, I'll be there on uh, Sunday and to listen to what you have to say and uh, I'll have to purchase a copy of your book if if I've interviewed you I have to buy the book it's that simple but can I ask have you got any other irons in the fire obviously you've got a little bit of time up your sleeve you're financially independent have you got any any other projects you'd like to mention projects that I was looking at when I did this was some of the war years in in Brisbane. Now, a lot of people don't realise how many American servicemen came through Brisbane. And and I I found a statistic, 1.6 million American servicemen and women uh, uh, served in the European theatre, North Africa and Britain during World War II. 1.2 million served in Brisbane. So Brisbane had um, a massive um, uh, impact on the war. And uh, they ran the war in the southwest Pacific from here. Most of the histories around Brisbane, the popular histories written, have been around the Battle of Brisbane, the battles between the Australian and American uh, servicemen yeah. over over women, mm-hmm. mainly over women, um, and and uh, and some of it's been around MacArthur, and and he was here obviously for about eighteen months. But we had much bigger engagement in that war than most people realise, um, particularly on some of the. Um, secret war activity that happened here uh, that's had some lasting consequences. So I've done some research on that over a long period of time. I just find it interesting. And uh, and um, and while some of it's been done in detail and some of it's been researched, um, it, it, there's a lot of stories there that are, are certainly are not common knowledge. And um, I, I'm just starting to refocus on on that. We're coming out of COVID. We're coming out of a few things. My grandchildren are now both in school, um, and uh, you know, uh, and, and I've got time. So, so that's one pro. I mean, that's a project that's been on the horizon for a long time. Um, I've put a lot of stuff together on it. Mm-hmm. If something better came up, I'd, I'd do that. Right. But, um, but that's that's the next that's project good. I'm looking at. Well, thank you for uh, your time. Thank you for taking the time to uh, research uh, Jesse's life. Thank you for writing the book and thank you for all your contributions to uh, Australian society, especially Queensland society, over the last 40 to 50 years. And I wish you and your poor wife, whose birthday it is today, all the best and your children and grandchildren. So thank you once again for uh, talking to us here on Radical Australia. And thank you for 
Thanks to you, Joe. It's been a pleasure joining you. The media in this country, we as Indigenous people know, have censored our right of telling the truth, and the truth is what this country is most fearful of, in particular Indigenous truths. Until history is told by the vanquished lens, which is our people telling our story our way, and have the right to be able to incorporate that into a system of learning, well, people are always going to be denied that truth by deceit and lies. When you look at the type of psychological warfare and spiritual warfare that Aboriginal people are caught in, it's not just in the sense of military when they talk about weapons of mass destruction, but you're right, it's in terms of the media and the industry of media as a warfare against our people and so is religion, I believe, in the Western sense. They're, they're all weapons of mass destruction against our, our people. We need to keep radical voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.